kind of symbology. What is at stake? It is a big idea. A new world order where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind. My question to you is, in any of your government jobs, have you ever been briefed on the subject of UFOs? And if you have, when was it and what were you told? Well, if I had been briefed on that, I'm sure it was probably classified and I couldn't talk about it. When I got out in 1989, we had cataloged 57 different species. We walked over to one side of the lab and he said, by the way, we've discovered a base. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Hello and welcome everyone to Skywatchers Radio. I am your co-host, Brian McComas, and I'm joined here with Rick Osman. I want to say uh, welcome to the show, everyone. And if you're new to listening, just uh, keep on uh, checking us out. Add us to the favorites, please. And uh, right now, uh, the date today is October the 12th, 2011. I like to always throw that out there. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and throw out the uh, guest call-in number. Uh, if you have any stories, paranormal issues, anything like that, uh, call in at any time. It's uh, 786-245-8127. And uh, we're going to go ahead and start the show. And again, this is Skywatchers Radio. And uh, Rick, are you there? I am. How you been, Brian? I have been great. Uh, for everyone listening in, uh, I've been away from, I guess you could say, the uh, the cast and crew of uh, the PSN radio. And uh, it's been a long time since I've talked to you, uh, Rick. I'm doing yeah. good, though. I'm glad to hear it. I've been staying pretty busy myself, as you might no. Uh, in fact, I've written a book since you and I last talked. So, All right, yeah, let's definitely bring that up because um, uh, for everybody that doesn't know, um, if, if this is your first time listening in or if you just listen in occasionally just to Skywatchers Radio uh, or you just play around on the Internet and you just happen to find yourself here, that's great. Uh, but Rick uh, Osman is uh, uh, just a wonderful go-to guy uh, deal, dealing with a lot of... Uh, uh, ancient information, uh, and how do you say it, Rick, exactly, where you're talking about the colonial times, and um, uh, I know you all got a word for it. <laughs> well, I call it um, hidden history, but the, the, main, okay, the main thing is the out-of-place artifacts, which are hard evidence pieces as opposed to records that can be altered or misinterpreted or obfuscated, etc. But when you find an artifact that's clearly out of place, that's hard evidence. And there are a lot of those, actually. And what is an out-of-place artifact? Um, well, let's say that you found a Roman sword along the Ohio River, buried un under three-foot of dirt or something. That would be an out-of-place artifact. And if you found, say, a Viking ship in a Minnesota lake bed, that would be a large out-of-place artifact. And those things, well, haven't found a Viking ship, but the Roman swords have been found, so... There's a lot of evidence out there, and that's what my book deals with for the most part. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, uh, what exactly is the topic of the book? And Go ahead and say the name of the book and uh, tell us all about it. Please go ahead. Sure. The Graves of the Golden Bear, 
Ancient Fortresses and Monuments of the Ohio Valley. And that's a long title, but there's actually a reason for each and every part of it. The uh, And telling you what the Golden Bear actually is would be giving away the book, so you'll have to buy or read the book or borrow it or something to find out what that actually means. But the fortresses are or were real places, real on-the-ground stone fortresses in the Ohio Valley, greater Ohio Valley, because they were on all the tributaries, too. And they're all gone, except for one. Uh, almost all of them were dismantled in the stones used to make railroad trestles here and there and yon. And it was, it was kind of like it was a concerted effort to erase all the evidence. And that's, that's what the book is really about. Who did it and why? Who built them and why? And who tore them down and why? So, The Graves of the Golden Bear, available on Amazon Kindle as we speak. That's awesome. When did you, when did you get it published? Uh, Monday, Columbus Day. Oh, wow. Oh. Awesome. Yeah, that, and that was all part of the plan, as Heath Ledger said. Another interesting factoid on Columbus Day has nothing to do with skywatching, but the king and queen of Norway came to visit Minnesota, and they arrived on Columbus Day. <laughs> <laughs> Whether there's any hidden meaning there or not, I don't know. That That is really awesome. Yeah, I'm actually, uh, I'm, most people have already heard me on the past shows, Talk about how I'm going to college, and I'm going in uh, to become a history major, and then from there I'm going into pre-law. But uh, my history teacher is is really awesome. You'd actually really like him, Rick. Uh, he talks about how the history books have been uh, played around with, toyed around with. Uh, they're not correct. Uh, he tells all kinds of things uh, about well-known people. I keep my uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah, and he, he's gone on and on with conspiracies. Um you know, and I mean, he's just, he's so awesome, but uh, uh, I'm finding that I'm really starting to like history, especially with this teacher, because he's brought up a lot of, uh, yeah, a, a lot of things, uh, most of it, of course, the Catholic Church was big back in the day, and so many conspiracies go back to them, but uh, he he went over Columbus the other day, and we were discussing stuff I've never even heard of before, and uh, so... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that just think that this stuff is, uh, like, I don't like the word conspiracy theory, because a theory is when you have an idea and you can't prove it yet. Uh, right. you can't, this is conspiracy you know, science. Exactly, exactly. That's a great word for it. Uh, but uh, I'm definitely going to get your book, and, uh, uh, you know, I really, really would like to uh, possibly get the book and then send it up to you to get it autographed. And well, I can be arranged. <laughs> well, it's not yet available in print edition, but it should be by Christmas. So we'll we'll get you one. Okay. But it's available on Amazon for Kindle. It's available on Smashwords for Kindle and all the other formats, which is two others, Sony and EPUB. Uh, it will be in Barnes and Noble and Diesel and I don't know where else. A whole bunch of them. My publisher is Grave Distractions Publications, another Brian, incidentally. And uh, you can go to GraveDistractionsPublications.com, or I'm sorry, GraveDistractions.com, and find some more information there, or order it directly. So, and it's only six ninety nine for the code. Oh, there you go, there you go. That's going to be really good. I got an iPad, and I do believe that it has a Kindle yep. program on it. 
yeah, there is a Kindle for iPad. So There's I'm actually even looking at your book right now. Um, <laughs> uh, on your face, you got a Facebook page for it, and I'm I'm looking at the front cover of it. Yep. You see the symbol on it, then. Yes, yes. It looks like a Masonic symbol with a line coming down. Yeah, and that um, we don't have all the test re- we don't have all the tests conducted yet, but the premise or the postulate is that that symbol was probably carved in the middle of the sixth century, mid to late sixth century. Hmm. And it and it's in Alabama. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that see, when you said sixth century, I thought you were talking about Europe or. Uh-huh. You know. <laughs> that is that is really good. Yeah, that's really awesome. So, are uh, have they dis- figured out or deciphered what the symbol is supposed to represent and what it's supposed to mean? Or no, all I have is my, my own conjecture, which is um, at the back of the book. So, there you go. Read the book. Don't skip because you'll miss too much. I use I use historical references. I use everything from official correspondence to personal correspondence between Thomas Jefferson and George Rogers Clark and uh, Meriwether Lewis's journals and the other members of the Corps of the Discovery Journal. Eighteenth, uh, very early eighteenth century French maps, um, some old Spanish maps, some old English maps, and these fortresses are on those maps. So we know that they were really there. We have narratives in letters from the governor of Tennessee, John Seaver, from George Rogers Clark, from you know lots of people that they they were conveying to other people. Yes, I saw this. I have no way to explain it, but it was to to quote John Seaver, a right and proper fortification. So we know they were there. They're no longer there. So it's two questions. Who built them, and why were they destroyed? Hmm. And, and, uh, and I think I have answers for both of those. Well, you've got me interested, and I'm not just saying that. Um, I definitely want to look at that. I'm a, I'm a really big, uh, uh, I, I, well, I wouldn't say, re- I, I'd say I have a thirst for knowledge, and I do soak up a lot of stuff, and I love finding evidence where either culturally or religiously, you can link something that's supposed to only be in China, and according to the history books, it's only in China, but you find it somewhere else in the world, or a teaching of, you know, like, there's this whole thing of uh, global communication, or, you know, one civilization was really on the other side of the world when the history book says it wasn't, and and I love finding finding things like that. I I love discovering things like that. Yeah, the the worst thing that an archaeologist or historian or anthropologist can do for their career and for the science, well, okay, the practice, the discipline, because I don't consider any of those actually sciences, is to assume that anybody that came before them was stupid, when in reality, people that came before them a long, really long time ago had much bigger brain-to-body mass ratios. So they weren't stupid. They may not have been as technically advanced, but intellectually, you know, cut them some slack, guys. They were probably smarter than three of you put together. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, so I, I see you've got a thing on here that's a, a quote, and it I guess it's a quote. It says, uh, it's got a Roman soldier, and it says, I just love the smell of Greek fire in the morning. 
Yeah. Um, do you know a lot about the Greek fire? Nobody knows a lot about Greek fire. All right, well, that tells me that you do you do know as much as I know. Yeah, I was going to say uh, there's there was a uh, there was a um, a movie I can't remember what it was, but uh, it was about some archaeologists digging at a Roman site. Yes, and they go back and they recreate. According to them, they recreated the the Greek Roman fire, but uh, the Greek fire to this day has never been duplicated uh, historically. And most people don't know that, and I found that just mind-blowing. And uh, the story of how they got Greek fire is even more intriguing. Well, yeah, it is, because um, they captured it from someone else, which is really typical of Roman engineering and technical stuff, and even political stuff. And <clears throat> even more to the point in my book, when they conquered some place. They conquered everything. They conquered the land. The entire population became slaves, essentially. And they even commandeered their cultural history. And in one case, uh, in particular, they conquered what what they called uh, Western Hispania. Basically, part of Spain and Portugal. And... They also conquered or captured the ancient records of Carthage. Everybody thinks that they, well, they just leveled it and sowed salt and they walked away. No. They absorbed everything they could from Carthage. When they conquered Syracuse, that was the very first historical uh, Operation Paperclip, if you will, because they wanted to take Archimedes alive because of what he had in his brain. He was the greatest scientist of the time of ages for that matter and some Roman soldier didn't read the order and killed him but the point is they wanted to capture everything particularly the science technology and engineering so when they captured extreme Hispania they also captured an area that contained an ancient Carthaginian mine today it's called Rio Tinto and in the 1990s, I think it was, I'd have to go look at my notes, some archaeologists were invited into that mine to look at a bunch of pieces of wood that were found there. And the Romans, in the Roman period of this mine, used what is called a reverse overshot water wheel. And it was a human treadle-powered water wheel. Two, Two slaves, two people, two workers, who hiked for a living, mountain hiked for a living, basically they get on these water wheels and they'd walk all day long. And it was pumping water from from inside the mine to the surface. It was a dewatering system for mining. But it wasn't just one water wheel. It was enough water wheels to lift that water 160 feet to the surface. So there was some significant engineering going on here. They knew their hydrology fairly well. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. You know, they had all the aqueducts. Oh, yeah, they were well known for that. Yeah. yeah. And and you can go to Europe and see them yet today, 2,000 years later. They're still standing. We can't make concrete like that. (laughs) You know, I can't can't keep the driveway from cracking after two years. Yep. 
That's that's true. And I just wanted to throw in something. You kept saying the word conquer, conquering uh, over and over. Uh, and everybody everybody does see the Roman Empire as a conqueror because they did come in. They did enslave people. They would take over. They'd establish towns. And then, of course, they'd uh, run the, uh, uh, the Greek or the Roman banner at the time uh, whenever Europe was forming. But... Um, one thing that my uh, my history teacher had told me, and I thought this was very interesting, is that a the Roman he always said the Roman Empire. If you don't learn anything else from them, at least remember that they are adapters and adopters. They will yeah. adapt to different situations, and every culture that they came into contact with and they did conquer, they would adapt and adopt everything from that culture into their own structure. Uh, and so it did, you know, it would cause a cultural mess, I guess. And it would be hard to prove that, you know, it would be very hard to prove that the Romans were somewhere. Because if they're constantly adapting and adopting, uh, yeah. you know. Well, right down to languages. For instance, ex- exactly. Um, you know, you, you station a legion or even even a century of troops somewhere. Well, if they're the only Latin speakers in the entire country... They have to learn to adapt to the country because you're not going to get the indigenous population to start speaking Latin. It wouldn't matter if they did. They wouldn't appreciate it. But if the troops started learning the res- the local language and started interacting in such a way, then they bring in auxiliaries, and some of the auxiliaries become Roman troops, and you know, at the end of their term, they become Roman citizens. So it was it was a give and take. And when they conquered an area, they established what they called civites. And the civite typically would be able to keep its local laws, you know, if, if for instance, in Jerusalem, um, you know, the, the Hebraic law held sway. But they paid tithes to Rome, tithes and taxes to Rome. And as long as the local law didn't interfere with Roman law, hey, go for it. So, so yeah, they were very much adapters, but they were also very adept at adopting specific um, cultural, unique, culturally unique um, abilities like technology and engineering. And yeah. getting back, getting back to the aqueducts, everybody thinks, "Oh, great, yeah, okay, you got uh, flush toilets and a fountain in the square." Well, that was. That was like the most minor use of all that water. When they, when they piped water from 30 miles away on a mountain to some place, it was because they wanted to use falling water as power for the grain mills, the sawmills, the hammer mills, and all the other industrial stuff that they had going 2,000 years ago. And you think, hammer mills 2,000 years? Yes, they had hammer mills. They crushed the stone before the limestone before they baked it into mortar or concrete. It worked better than having, you know, a thousand slaves with sledgehammers. It was just more economical. And they had sawmills, what they call a, um, a reciprocating sawmill with a, a pitman arm, if any mechanical engineers happen to be listening. They had a pitman arm, and this thing would be just like a, a regular sawmill that you'd see from the 18th, 19th century in America that was water-driven. Same thing, except it was 2,000 years ago. And it wasn't just for lumber. They sawed stone with water power. And, uh, 
and moved it all over the Roman Empire. So, obviously, they had pretty good sailing vessels to carry. In one one very well-known case, uh, 82 tons of marble. And you think, that's a pretty good-sized boat. Well, yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, They had a lot of big boats. <laughs> so, could they sail across the Atlantic? <laughs> you can bet on it. It wouldn't have been in a Roman fighting galley, but yeah, they could sail across the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, uh, I'm completely interested uh, in this. Uh, I love I love talking about these things. Uh, I love the idea uh, and you know the I guess you could say excavation of trying to prove that a culture moved from one place to another. And uh, yeah. uh, I mean, yeah, definitely. I'm gonna definitely get this. Uh, and uh, we, you know, that, I'm not just doing that to half, support you. <laughs> that's only half the story, though. The other half of the digging, as you excavation, as you put it, was uncovering why don't the powers that be want us to know this? Why would they obfuscate and destroy evidence that there was somebody here before Columbus? But uh, <clears throat> it's all in the book. So. <laughs> oh yeah! Oh go. yeah! Yeah, well, the the whole debate about Columbus, you know, that over the last thirty or forty years, there's been so much information come out with that, and I know that in Canada there was a Viking community that was discovered. Uh, that Angel was Meadows. Yes. Yep. That was that predates Columbus. I want to say uh, either two hundred or no, it wasn't two hundred. Two thousand. Five hundred years before. Okay. Columbus. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ex- yeah. Exactly. And uh, you know, pe- people don't understand things like. Um, uh, Isaac Newton, who, you know, defined gravity. Well, 200 years before Isaac Newton, Leonardo da Vinci already understood gravity, journaled about it, put it in his notebooks. Uh, and see, people, people don't, don't understand that before, uh, before the, the famous, you know, case comes out, there's always another case before that, and one yeah. before that, one before that. So, yeah. so, yeah. And, like, for instance, uh, I don't talk about this in the book much, but the Antikythera device, which, everybody, what's that mean? What's an Antikythera device? Well, it's, when they found it, it was a glob of corroded brass and bronze with 36 gears that were cut very precisely. And some of them were offset in strange ways. And it was dated from about 150 B.C. So, you know, 2150 years ago, somebody was machining very precision mechanical gear works. It's like, could they do that? Well, obviously they could do that. And it puzzled the scientists and everybody for a long time, and then an engineer figured out, okay, uh, and and they found, using x-rays and some other very high-tech tests, they found that there was writing on some of the gears, wheels. And... What they finally determined, and it's pretty much irrefutable now, is that this was basically a geared, what they call, ossuary. And it's, it's a planet finder. And you give it one hand crank a day, and it tells you where the planets should be from a certain point of view. Which would change, of course, if you were on a different part of this planet. But nevertheless, only by a very slight amount. So they understood, not only did they understand complex and precision mechanical works, 
They also understood astronomy to the point that they could predict it with a bunch of gears 2,150 years ago. And yet, they couldn't sail across an ocean that St. Brendan sailed in a leather boat? <laughs> Sorry, I ain't buying it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we got to keep in mind the whole idea of the world being flat was uh, primarily coming out of uh, England and, uh, of course, the Dark Ages set everybody back. So uh, when we popped out of that, uh, you mm. had the rise of the churches and things like that. So, yeah, England... England was seen as a power structure, but not all cultures believe that. Uh, and you know, and there's so many people that's written stories. Well, and actually, uh, it wasn't England until 1250 AD. But well, yeah, yeah. Before that, it was Britain. Yep. Yep. But and, nevertheless, uh, the I, I do talk about the Dark Ages and what it really means, and it had mm-hmm. nothing to do with the disappearance of the ability to write, because in Wales they had contiguous records all through the period. Oh yeah, 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 and well, you know, when the when the German uh, when the German tribes and armies came through there and uh, and sacked all that, uh, you got to keep in mind that's only one part of the world. You know, there's still stuff going on on the other side of the world, yes. and other nations are still doing right. things. You know, but uh, uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I used to define. I mean, I personally used to define the Dark Ages as a technological slowdown, uh, but it wasn't because there was other things going on with the rest of the world. And yeah. uh, now and it, wasn't, I, it wasn't just the post-Roman world either. It was worldwide. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. some kind of a worldwide situation. I hesitate to call it a calamity because most of the population lived through it. But there were famines, there were plagues, and there were mass migrations, um, particularly in the middle of the 6th century, uh, about the time that symbol was carved in Alabama. So. Oh yeah, 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 and it's and see, it's so fun to, to to go through this. And I've always been the you know I've always had a theory that there were cities uh, everywhere across the world, and that either through human war or something else, uh, you know, we kill our own selves, or something else happens, and that knowledge is lost. And you know, just to, just to give an example, you know, if there was a nuclear war, war right now that you know several countries just blasted each other. Uh, yeah, humans are going to survive. We're always going to find a way to survive. I, I, I do believe that. I mean, because we got people everywhere on the face of this planet right now. But the mass majority of the knowledge, the libraries, our technological stuff, it's all going to disappear, you know, mm-hmm. over time. So, the, you know, our society that we're living in now could become a myth or a legend to future societies who have to start from scratch again. Right. And about the only writing that will survive will be what is scratched into rocks, and most of it amounts to Kilroy was here. Yeah, which makes and you kind of one. <laughs> yeah. So, but the guys in Georgia, whoever they are, or were, who commissioned that Atlanta or Georgia Stonehenge thing. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of it, but it's got... Oh, yeah. No, nice, I know. Yeah. It's got the... We're talking about the population decrease, and uh, I think it's got 13 laws on it. Is it 13? Uh, I don't recall. But you know what? That'll still be standing there. It may not be legible, but it'll still be standing there. Yep. Yep. Well, you know, there was a guy that I talked to, and he said that he visited uh, the, uh, I think they they call them the Guidestones. Isn't that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he said that there's holes that are in there 
that most people don't even talk about. And he said that you can tell they're created on purpose. And he believed that they lined up with certain astronomical signs and alignments. And he did believe some of them actually pointed towards Orion's belt. And we've got all these structures in ancient times that are always seem to point towards that direction. And uh, he was, he was he was trying to yeah. write a book about it. I don't know if he ever brought it out though. Well, you know, you can't really point with anything stationary. You can't really point at Orion's belt. What you can do is point at a path through which it travels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that's the way it was explained to me. I wasn't there. Um, yeah, yeah. I thought that was and, interesting. And the same is true with Giza, which uh, I think it was Graham Hancock was promoting the idea that that was uh, Orion's belt in the form of pyramids. And I can't, I cannot say that he's wrong, but I can't really say I think he's right either. Um, there's a lot more going on at Giza than just lining up with Orion's belt. But that's not unique to the old world either. There are all kinds of things in North America and South America that uh, that align just as intricately with astronomical objects or events. Uh, in fact, there's one in Salem, New Hampshire called either American Stonehenge or it's also called Mystery Hill. And anybody that can get there, I encourage you to go out there and go in the summer, but douse yourself thoroughly with mosquito repellent. But when you're out there, particularly on some astronomical event date, equinox or solstice, you'll see that somebody knew what they were doing when they set up all these sighting stones. And on the eastern edge of this sighting range, if you will, there are eight stones that are completely consistent with the um, the equatorial changes of Venus. So, somebody understood that Venus had an eight-year cycle. Somebody besides the Maya, or either that or the Maya traveled a long ways, or somebody else traveled a long ways to get to Salem, what is today Salem, New Hampshire. And uh, it's, it's an amazing place. But, there are literally dozens that have already been identified that are that are that intricate and that well designed. Yeah, yeah and might- you know, uh, I was going to ask. I was going to ask your opinion on this, um, but um, you know, I, I've read everything that, that that is out there on the what the Mayans uh, are supposed to believe. I'll say supposed to believe, but I'm saying that for a reason. Uh, and there's so many of these ancient artifacts and structures that point to celestial alignments or equinox alignments. And I I just, you know, my opinion uh, has differed over the years. And uh, I was going to ask you if you believe that the Earth will shift or do a polar flip or go off of its orbital course or or something crazy like that. I know that's a little off topic, but uh, we we were talking about the structure. Well, no, actually it is on topic because you're asking an opinion. And it kind of has to do with sky watching. So, no, the, uh, the, the axis of the Earth is not going to flip. The magnetic alignment of the Earth could, and it has many times. But as far as the axis, the rotational axis, no, not going to happen. There has been a gradual 
shift in the orbital ac or I'm sorry, the rotational axis of about four degrees over four billion years. So no, it's not going to flip its rotational axis. But the magnetic field has flipped or reversed. Nobody knows how many times. The geologists don't really have a clue. They do know that the most prominent or most, um, yeah, most prominent evidence uh, goes back at least two billion years that it's happened several times in that period. But they can't really gauge it further back than that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I've, se I've seen some of the evidence and stuff coming up uh, with, uh, I guess it was a satellite that was pointed at the Earth, and it shows these, it looks like an electrical arc that goes out away from the Earth but then comes right back in, and there's thousands of these, and they have to do with the magnetic shift, and I've seen models of that uh, that are supposed to be based on real, real data, and uh, I've seen evidence, yeah, where uh, they can show you that the magnetic uh, flip does happen, and it slowly is happening now, and other things like that. Uh, I, well, I do want to throw it out there. We got we're getting ready to come up on a break here in a few. I yeah. believe uh, we got two more minutes though. Yep. Yeah. The uh, you know the Charles Hapgood theory just doesn't quite work, and he's the one that said that the crust shifted on the core and uh, caused the ice ages to change and all that stuff. But um, the geological evidence of that says no it just not only no but hell no didn't happen now what you can see in the geological evidence is there are a lot of fissures in the crust that a lot of things have impacted or changed the rotation very suddenly and it has caused fractures in the crust and that shows up really well in the geologic record now, you can't see it so much with the modern satellite stuff, but when you go back and you look at the when they used to do real, honest-to-God soundings of an ocean, you could actually see it in the bottom plate depth charts. And it just, you know, it's just a hodgepodge of fissures. So, yep, yep. it's there. It's well, real. We're going to go on break, guys. Uh, so, again, you know, you're listening to Skywatchers Radio. Uh, you're listening to myself, uh, I'm the co-host, Brian McComas, and we have our other co-host, Rick Osman, who has been talking about his book uh, called The Graves of the Golden Bear. So check out Graves of the Golden Bear, and right now, I guess you'd say it's electronically uh, viable, yeah. and soon it's going to be on paperback, right? Correct. All righty. Well, uh, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and uh, when we get back, uh, we'll, we'll discuss some more about... Uh, uh, Mr. Osmond's book, and uh, let me go ahead and throw out the call-in number while right before we go on break. Again, uh, the call-in number is seven eight six two four five eight one two seven. That's seven eight six two four five eight one two seven. Call in if you got a question. Call in if something you got something on your mind that has to do with sky watching, paranormal uh, issues, or anything of the sort. And uh, we'll be back here in a few minutes, guys. This is sky Watchers Radio. 4,734 UFO sightings in 2007. 854 abductions by aliens or unknown species reported by American and British citizens. 
hundreds more unreported in 2007. Suppressed information about collisions with passenger aircraft and UFOs that has been kept from public knowledge for years. And only one trusted source of information from some of the top UFO researchers in the world. Exclusive information that cannot be found anywhere else on the planet. Trusted, connected, accurate. The UFOstore.com. Expand your personal library with fast shipping and instant downloadable information from the largest selection of UFO products on the internet by going to theufostore.com or call on a 24-hour, 7-day-a-week order line at 541-523-2630. The truth is out there, and theufostore.com has it. Looking for a used car? Well, look no further. Florida Fine Cars has the car just for you. Here at Florida Fine Cars, we pride ourselves in customer service and quality of cars. Looking for a high-end car? We got them. Looking for an older car for a small cash deal? We got them. Due to having over 400 cars in our inventory, no matter what your situation, we can help. For more information, please go to www.floridafinecars.com today. This summer, Showtime presents a Major League Baseball Productions original series that takes you deep inside the lives of the Major League ball players, like you've never seen it before. Congratulations. You're in big league. Follow the world champion San Francisco Giants on the field and off. I'm baseball camera. You got him down? As they fight to hold on to the trophy. Mark it down. Repeat. The franchise. A season with the San Francisco Giants premieres Wednesday, July 13th at 10. Only on Showtime at Showtime HD. Adventures in time and space. Transcribed in future tense. The powwow. Countdown for blast off. X minus 5, 4, 3, 2, Minus one. Disorder never sounded so good. From the far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future. Adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine presents The Powwow. Weekends at 12. Only on SoFloRadio.com. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man of steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com All systems are functional. I'm going to pass the reins to Mr. Jackal, the chief the new king of radio. Is there life on other planets? This is nuclear physicist Ben Friedman, and now I'm a voice in the jackal head. It's the government keeping secrets from us. This is Stephen Bassett, and uh, I am now a voice inside the jackal's head. Want to find out more? Listen to the jackal's head on the Supermedia Network. The biggest trick the jackal ever pulled was to miss the world, <laughs> that he doesn't exist. 
Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. This is Skywatchers Radio, and uh, thank you for listening in, and uh, let's keep continuing. Uh, we're sitting here with uh, Rick Osman, and uh, he is talking about his book, and we're discussing a little bit uh, more, so I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Rick, and uh, if you can, um, Rick, let's go ahead and uh, uh, let, I, don't want, I don't want you to spoil the book, but um, uh, is there any more you can talk about it on the air? Uh, well, maybe? sure. Okay. Uh, actually, uh, there are... Uh, the first three chapters are available in two different places on the internet. The first two chapters, the introduction and the forward, are available on the Amazon page if you look do the look inside thing. And then chapter three is actually available on Scribd or Scribd or however you pronounce that S C R I B D dot com. So you can get the first roughly three chapters, first twenty uh, percent of the book there and I'll just tell you up front that I went back and I looked at all these old maps and it's like okay a lot of these maps are clearly wrong but they have all these labels of things that just seem out of place and in one map in particular was drawn by a guy by the name of Delisle and he was the royal geographer for King Louis of France. In that particular case, this was King Louis when he was five years old, um, when Dauphine died early. So it was drawn between 1716 and 1718. And there are a couple of odd entries on this map. At the confluence of the Mississippi River and the Ohio River is a note that says Ancien Fort. Now, ancien in French has several different meanings depending on context. It can mean like the old fort, or it can mean like, uh, for instance, the previous paragraph, or the former prime minister, or ancien has several meanings depending on context. But in that context, it can only mean ancient fort. And it that's what it was. There was an ancient fort there. And it was on the map 
that the guy made for the king of France and you know, the regent of France because the king was only five years old. But this guy was the appointed cartographer, map maker, and geographer to help um, uh, educate this young king of France. <clears throat> so, and he was one of the most learned, educated men in Europe at the time, and the French were the best map makers in the world at that time. The Dutch went out and drew funny pictures, and the French took it and made it into maps. Good quality maps. And yet I look at this map, and things are kind of screwy. They, you know, the Mississippi Valley's pretty good. Lower Missouri's good. Gulf Coast is pretty good. The Chicago, or I'm sorry, the Illinois River's not very good. The Ohio River, which they didn't call Ohio. They called it the Wabash River because that's what the Indians called it. Um, it, it was wrong. I mean, it was just plain wrong. And... And there, there were strange, the other strange things. For instance, in the lower right-hand corner, there's a detail of Mobile Bay, which at that time, Mobile was the capital of the Louisiana Territory, or the colony of La Louisiane, a French colony. So you had this, this capital at Mobile Bay, you know, where Florida kind of meets... Mobile, Alabama, and rivers go inland, Timbog, Tim, yeah, whatever that river is. Um, <laughs> yeah. Tom Bigby, there it is. Uh, and, and inside this little detail, there is a island, an island, that is labeled Isle of Statues. It's like, what? <laughs> What's that mean? So I started digging around for history on the Isle of Statues. And it turns out that the governor of La Louisiane, his name was Bienville, and he had a kid brother named D'Iberville. And D'Iberville was eh, kind of a brat, apparently. He was 17, 18 years old, which, you know, okay, so, so, so what? He was a colonel at 17, but he was still a brat. And he coerced, uh, bribed one of the local Mobile Indians into showing him this island where their gods lived. And when he got out there, what he found was these five statues. There was a man, a woman, a child, a bear, and an owl. And they were terracotta ceramic is the word he used, um, which is two different things, incidentally. True ceramics are fired for a glaze. And he used the word ceramic rather than terracotta. So, presumably, they had a really good kiln to get a glaze, whoever made them. But he took them back to the fort, and uh, Bienville said he was going to take them back to France. But they disappear from history at that point. No further record anywhere. And that's, the, that's where it started getting funny. It's like, okay, first of all, nobody, not even the Indians, attributed these things to Native Americans. The French could not believe that the Mobile or any of the surrounding tribes were capable of that type of ceramic art. 
mm, okay, then who left them there and what did they represent? Yeah, well, you have to get to the <laughs> you have to get to the end of the book to get my speculation about that. But that's all it is, is speculation. But it's informed speculation, if you will. So we move on to the later chapters. It's like, okay, so they had this this colony and they wanted to keep that colony from the Spanish who were both to the east and to the west of them in Florida and Texas and Mexico and from the English who were all up and down the east coast of the English colonies and then you had the French kind of sandwiching those in both in Canada or New France and or Nueva France and La Louisiane so this map this Delisle map was to educate the King of France on what the situation was in North American colonies. So, you know, ostensibly it had to be correct. It had to support their land claims, their colonization, and it had to give him enough information to defend that and strategize about defending that. And there are a number of things on this map that clearly are for that purpose. Then there are a number of other things on this map that uh, are strange. For instance, he mentions a couple of lead mines along the Mississippi River. And there are indeed areas along the Mississippi River in Wisconsin and Iowa that are, you know, lead mining areas. And yet in 1716, the French were not mining lead in those areas at least not in any organized or uh, government-sponsored way, or even government-sanctioned way. And yet, they mention lead mines. Now, if they had been lead deposits, then he would have used the word for lead deposit. No, he used mine de plume, lead mines. So, we know that somebody had lead mines there already. And... On the Iowa side, he had it spelled with a lowercase p, and on the Wisconsin side, he had it spelled with an uppercase p. It's like, okay, this is one of the most highly educated people in Europe. Why would he do that? That doesn't make sense, unless it was on purpose. So, smelling a code... (laughs) I went looking for what did the French use for codes. And it turns out that they had the best code that was devised before the 20th century. And it was called the Grand Cipher. And it was invented in the 1620s. And it stayed unbroken until 1893. Which is, it's like, you know, this is like Hall of Fame code making. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and when you combine, but like any code, anything that's in cipher, a substitution cipher, for instance, you know it's a cipher. You may not be able to crack it right away, but you know it's a cipher, and you know how to attack that cipher. But this was not a simple substitution cipher. They did not substitute a letter for a number. They substituted whole syllables for a number. So, you know, the the language the French language is 
fairly complex anyway. Nothing like Mandarin, but it's fairly complex. So they had this, these long lists of numerals that equated to a syllable. And, uh, and they used that as their grand cipher. Now, they had different keys for different people. That's one reason it stayed unbroken. But if you take a cipher and you, you put the elements of that cipher code or that substitution into something that doesn't look like a cipher, then it will probably never be cracked unless you're the intended recipient of whatever that is and have the key and, you know, you're in on it, so to speak. Yeah. Well, there are enough elements in this map to make me believe that Delisle did exactly that with this map. And if that's true, then there was an accompanying cipher key and there was an accompanying narrative to this map, which neither have ever surfaced to my knowledge. Or if they did, no one has put the two and two together. But the elements of this map, like the lowercase and uppercase P's, that's, if that were the only thing, I'd have quit. But I found a whole bunch of stuff that fell in that general thing. It's like, okay, this is drawing attention to this for some reason. And the parts of the map that are skewed, okay, it's like, okay, this area isn't nearly that big in reality, but he drew it that way. And this was like the world's best cartographer of the day, okay? So it, it's not like he made mistakes. He was doing something on purpose here. So I make some speculations about what he was doing and, and what it may represent. But, of course, without the key and the narrative, we'll never know exactly. However, a couple of things stu stood out a lot. So Chapter 3 is online. You can go check out Chapter 3. But then later on, I extend that into, um, you know, who else might have known some version of the Grand Cipher and used it oh, I don't know, even up into the 19th century in America, which would have meant they were Americans. So, <clears throat> anyway, and they did, and I pretty much proved that too. So, and that gets into uh, not only who built the stone fortresses, but who tore them down and why. So, that's yeah, what we had... Yeah, we have so many different just groups and societies and uh, things, you know, organizations, I guess you could say, uh, that keep taking knowledge and evidence and uh, just, you know, documents, and they hoard it and they hide it from the world. Uh, yeah. I, I know that the uh, Freemasons have a lot of stuff that's never been public because uh, uh, I, I was a... I was a member and I left. I know that uh, the Catholic Church publicly admits that they have documents uh, that they will never release, uh, you know, that, yeah. that has to do with both science and religion and even history. Uh, so, yep. yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's it, when, you, when you know little things like that, it's easy to understand how there could be a colonization, uh, such as what your book is talking about here. Uh, in America from the Romans, and then, uh, you know, it disappeared over time. Everybody, yeah, well, you know, everybody would cover it the, up. The thing about the colonization was it wasn't just the Romans. It was the Romans in the very specific period of time that the Romans. But there were people here before, there were people here after. 
and the reason the Romans are important is the core of why all the evidence is being obfuscated, hidden, and destroyed. And you got to buy the book to find out. <laughs> oh yeah, well we want we want to increase the curiosity of the listeners, of course, uh, to help you sell it. But we all we also want to discuss it and have you talk about it. So I mean, you know, uh, it's 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 all about asking questions and then. Uh, Getting everybody thirsty for that knowledge. <laughs> yeah, who, what, where, when, why, how, how long, how much. Those are all important questions in this particular investigation. Yeah. Now, the the most important question I have is how much longer do we have to put up with the crap? Because it's very clear to me that there were a lot of people here before Columbus, and yet we celebrate Columbus Day. I think we need to can the name and call it Explorer's Day or something like that because Columbus, and it gets back to what is discovery. Discovery is not exploration. Discovery gets back to the papal bulls that said, if they're not Christian, go ahead and take whatever they have, including their bodies, because they're not Christian. They don't matter. That's what the papal bulls said. Terra Nova. Uh, they called it empty lands. If there were no Christian churches in a land, go take it, conquer it, it's yours. And then send tithes back. And that's what discovery is. And that's there's a very, very clear trail, historically and legally, of how that drove the historical um, colonization of the Americas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, see, there, there's things about Columbus that most people don't know, and uh, Columbus had, uh, you know, he, he wanted to increase, I believe he wanted to increase his profit with his brother by setting up a trade route, and that's what that whole expedition was really about, and he had went to the Spanish uh, royal royalty and requested for funding and they at the time said we can't do it because there was a war going on with the new christian spaniards and the and and, and muslims and the spanish royalty said no uh not until after we've de dealt with the muslims but uh there's a there's a lot about columbus that people just do not know and uh there is in fact there is a particular person who i and i can't think of his name i'm looking on the internet for him and i can't I can't find anything about it, but there was a particular rabbi that had convinced Columbus to take that route. And yep. when Spain, yeah, and when Spain finally said, okay, we've dealt with the Muslims, uh, that's why he sailed when he did is because the royal family said, all right, here's your money, now go. And, uh, of course, you know, I do believe Columbus was dumbfounded. I do believe he really did think he was in India. Um, but uh, there, there is documents by this rabbi who who, you know, and these are written documents, who was suggesting that there were seven continents, that the world was round, and was telling Columbus to go there. And, the, and you know, and, and it's little things like that, history and, doesn't... And gave him a map. Yes, yes. Well, I didn't want to throw that out there, too, because some of these things are so hard and unbelievable, it's, it's you know, most people don't want to accept it. But, uh, yeah, and, you know, it's, it's hidden history like that that needs to be brought out because it makes things much more interesting. And uh, there, there are several cultures uh, around the world that that knew that the world was round. Uh, and, and oh, yeah. you know, we we talk about the Mayans knowing about planets. There were many cultures that knew that we had several planets that claimed to have gotten the knowledge 
from, I'll say, outside sources uh, that were non-human, according to the <laughs> history. Yeah, but usually attributed to gods. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, and uh, th- these things are fascinating. And so, uh, you know, if anybody's listening in and they're thinking, well, uh, okay, you know, what's Skywatchers Radio about? Well, Skywatchers Radio is, of course, usually we want to try to put it in a uh, ufology topic, but of course it's anything paranormal. We're, we're dealing with that. And uh, the book that Rick Osman has uh, authored, uh, Gra- Graves of the Golden Bear, uh, has to deal with the, I guess you could say, the Roman colonization in America. It, and It deals with history. multiple colonizations, mm-hmm. and the, the Roman colonization is uh, based on my, my, my speculation, my assertion. There you go. That's the right word. My assertion that the Romans colonized America is based on the disappearance of certain Roman legions and other Roman citizens and a few records of, um, of unrecognized, as far as science, unrecognized artifacts, relics. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the artifacts are real, whether they are really of that period, uh, I'm not qualified to say. What I am qualified to say is they certainly reflect the right scripts of that period. Right, so. right, and of course, if you can point out to people that uh, you know history is—I uh, don't want to say flawed, but that you know that's that's the truth. If you can point out to people that history has been uh, given to them wrong or misinterpreted, then uh, you know people start to think freely, and that's that's what I want to see out of listeners. Uh, you know, I want people to think freely, and it's okay if if you have an opinion that's you know not my opinion. That you know, it's right. free world. But uh, I, well, I just I, kind of, I would like to see people unplug from that. Yeah, you know, exactly. That program. It's kind of like I put a I put a kind of a. Okay, let me back up. On Amazon, they have this companion site called Shelfari, and it's where people can who have read or own the book can go in and discuss it. And as the author, I went in and I gave some starting points. And one of the starting points I gave was. Uh, a notice to parents, in effect. I said, you know, a lot of this material does not match what your children will learn in school or even in some religious context. Those institutions have a doctrine and a dogma of their own. What, what I'm dealing with is a little bit of fact and a little bit of speculation, but I'm clear enough between the two in my writing that this is fact, this is speculation. I encourage the parents to speak with the children about the content and make all of them aware that you know, there's going to be some differences between this and what you see in school or Sunday school. So be prepared. And that is exactly the same speech that I got from my professor in history. <laughs> to the T, just about. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, okay, I've got this textbook. But I can't trust it. <laughs> and I've got these these letters from Thomas Jefferson to Meriwether Lewis. And you can't change the text because it's Thomas Jefferson's writing, okay? Where he's telling him to use ciphers. It's like, okay, so they had secrets. We know they had secrets. We don't know exactly what those secrets were, but we can do some informed speculation about it. So... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. 
Thomas Jefferson was the ambassador to France. So he got to know the Grand Cipher real well. Or at least one version of it. Yeah. Well, we've had a lot of, you know, we've had a lot of contact with uh, the French. I mean, even the Statue of Liberty, you know, has uh, symbology and uh, secret society. Uh, I, I guess you could say gest- gestures and information all over the Statue of Liberty, and it comes from France. Oh, yeah. A gift to the people. <laughs> it was, and it yeah. was a gift, but technically it was not a gift from the government of France. It was a gift from Eiffel. Technically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they always say, you know, if you got something to hide, the best place to hide it is in plain sight. Exactly. And, uh, and that's, that's actually one of the name, the name of one of the chapters in plain sight. So, good segue there, Brian. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> it's been a while since I've done radio and, and, uh, you know, I have so much going on uh, with with my life right now. I'm I'm glad to have you here on the show, and uh, of course you've co-hosted this so many other times. And uh, yeah, between you and uh, Angel, I mean, uh, I you know those are some big shoes to fill. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I guess, but um, it's it's not a matter of so much of being polished as it is being honest, radio or anything else. And this this book is how I honestly feel about what I uncovered. And a lot of people are going to be upset about some of the stuff I uncovered because I I shoot down a lot of heroes. So so be it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they did what uh, they did. (laughs) Right, right, and that needs you know that needs to be brought up though. But uh, here, you know, heroes are always a uh, you know a legend that is given to. The people for inspiration. Of course, we all know that everybody's got a dark past. Everybody's got secrets, uh, you know. And sometimes when you got that fame, especially when you got fame and money, uh, you know, it it, it it has a thing about it where it just it gets you to do things you normally wouldn't do. Yeah. Uh, you know, and some of the best people that I've ever known in my life uh, were people who are struggling, uh, and I really do mean that. Uh, now I do know a few people who do have a lot of money, and uh, they're really good people. But and I've I've met some famous people. I'm not going to throw out any names, but I've I've met people that I can name, and you all would be like, okay. And uh, man, I, I I have seen them, and uh, you know, I mean, I hate to uh, generalize, but when you hear that people in Hollywood have no souls, uh, I would agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of them. There are a few exceptions. But oh that, yeah, that, of course. That's only because they go to Hollywood, go to work, and then they come home. But I, um, getting back to the history thing and your history professor, um, one of the best quotes I came across in all my research about history was from Napoleon Bonaparte, and his quote was, "History is merely a lie agreed upon." Now that is a good one. Yeah, and I. I, uh, um, you could. I let you encourage you actually to take that back to class. I'm going so. to actually. <laughs> I'll take that back to my. Uh, I got an English writing class too that I'm doing, and uh, we have a quote book where we get a a little journal diary and we write mm-hmm. quotes, and that is definitely going in that one. So that's you know it's going to be said in history and my writing class. <laughs> I have several quotes peppered 
through the text, particularly when I, I go between parts, like it's divided into part one, part two, part three, part four. And on those part plates, I've put a quote that is pertinent to that part of the book. Uh, for instance, in part one, I have a quote from Oscar Wilde who said, America was discovered many times before Columbus, but it was always covered up. So, mm -hmm. and then uh, I have one from Mark Twain, and I, ha I even have one from Bob Dylan, but I can't take credit for using that one. My publisher came up with that one. So, and he did good. But, uh, no, th there's a little bit of fun, um, a lot of good questions, and a few good answers in this book. So that's, and I still have a lot of questions. Enough for book two, or three, or four, or five. Well, but that's what makes you good, is because, uh, you know, you're, you always got questions, so you're always going to seek, uh, you know, evidence and uh, answers, or else hypothesis with plausible evidence. But uh, so many people in, in your field... Uh, that are writing books out there, they think they have all the answers, and uh, those are the ones you know. That that's when you worry. When, when you when you're a teacher, or you know, you're trying to teach people, and you assume you have all the answers. That's when you probably need to quit. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true of almost any field or discipline, though. Uh, oh yeah. When you think you're the best carpenter in town, and nobody's hiring you to build anything, there's something wrong. When you're the cheapest carpenter in town and everybody's trying to get your services, you don't have to be the best carpenter in town because you're busy all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. Yep, that is very true. And uh, since we were speaking about uh, secrets earlier and uh, how organizations and governments hide them, uh, since you brought the carpenter thing, I'll just throw this at, at you. Uh, I, I read some very interesting uh, information that the Catholic Church had uh, had a historical, I guess, document or, and it wasn't an oral translation, but it, was, it had to do with the early life of Jesus Christ and a miracle that he had done before the wine. Uh, and there were actually several of them, and uh, the Catholic Church supposedly was hiding them. And, uh, you know, you see things like that in the, uh, uh, in uh, different, uh, uh in uh, in different authors' views and different books out there, uh, where they discuss things that you don't hear about, and then you know the mainstream idea is this, but then somebody says, "Oh no, but wait, there's this," you know, and that, that's what's that's what's always important is to look at different perceptions and point of views and ideas and. Yep. Well, there's a chapter in my book entitled "A Pair of Jacks and a Pair of Kings," and. Uh, one of the jacks and one of the kings are very integral to the Jesus story. You can guess which one's the king, probably. But guessing who the jack is is a whole different thing. And, uh, and who the other jack and the other king are is a whole different thing as well. But once you read it, you'll understand why I threw the two together. Yeah, and it's a catchy it phrase, to be, too. The other Jack. king... The other king is King Arthur. Oh, really? Yeah. So, 
that's a subtle hint, not so subtle, I guess, but it's a hint mm-hmm. of what you'll find in this book. I, I cover a lot of different bases, but I tried not to spread it so thin that it didn't tell a cogent and contiguous story. Because, in my opinion, it is all one story. One continuous bunch of people coming to America for their own reasons. So, there you go. And that included a bunch of very early Christians. Very early Christians. Like close family type Christians. Yeah, um, well, um, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm trying to... Uh, throw out the call out the call in number and everything. I'm trying to get some people. Uh, I've got a few people on Facebook uh, that are listening in. We got some people that are uh, in the chat. I'm going to throw out the call in number again. If you want to call in with a question, a comment, anything that's uh, uh, you know has to do with the subject uh, tonight, or if you just want to ask uh, Mr. Osman something, uh, just go ahead and call in. It's seven eight six two four five eight one two seven. And again, you're listening to Skywatchers Radio. I'm going to have to plug that every now and then. Uh, currently, you're listening to myself. I am uh, the co-host here on Skywatchers Radio, Brian McComas. And with me is our co-host, and I'll go ahead and say guest as well, uh, Rick Osmond. Well, for tonight, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're discussing Rick's uh, work and uh, his book that he has just authored, Graves of the Golden Bear. It is already available to be downloaded. Uh, I, I highly suggest everybody check that out. It's Graves of the Golden Bear. And if there are several people, like I said, on my Facebook. Uh, I've already posted a couple of things and links to your Graves of the Golden Bear. Uh, and, Thank uh, you. Yeah, and I, I actually I, well, I have two Facebooks. i got one that's kind of public uh, that deals with uh, my, my business. And uh, my website that I run. And then I've got my other one that's more family-oriented, friend-oriented. So I'm going to make sure to post that on both links. Uh, so, uh, yeah, if you if anybody has any questions whatsoever, just call in. It always makes it interesting. I know we do have someone in the chat room earlier who said that they were... Uh, I'm trying to find where they got that. They were saying that they were talking about the same subject. Uh, and I was hoping they'd call in, but I haven't heard anything yet. And... Uh, they said that a good 15 minutes ago, so yeah. hopefully we can get that person to call in, you know, and just, you know, uh, bring in their information or yep, questions that or works anything. works for me. Yeah, there's, there's a, a lot in the book, and as people read it, I'm sure they'll come up with their own questions about not only the content, but the sources. And for the most part, I cite the sources, either in footnote form or directly in the text. So it's not like I'm just pulling this out of the air. I'm, I'm finding real sources. Now, some of them are disputed sources, and I try to be honest about that. You know, it's like, okay, this is, uh, there's, I did take stuff off of Wikipedia, but only after I went and checked their sources. So, you know, it's, it's direct source stuff. So it's not, you know, even my when I say it's speculation, it's because it's my speculation. When I say it's a disputed source, that's what it is. But it's a source. Yeah, well, I mean that you know that's how all that's how all information starts off and uh, all history eventually, you know, source yep. and uh, so on and so forth. So uh, yeah, I mean it's it's really good to hearing from you. But uh, uh, are, are you working on any new projects, or do you have any uh, <laughs> you know future books you want to? 
in that? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I have a, another very recent publication that I was a part of called Pangea Anthology, um, Volume 1, and that was with Scott Marlowe and the rest of the Pangea Fellows and a few friends, which I fall on the friends stuff. The Pangea Fellows are actually educators, and in the case of this particular Volume 1, it's all about, um, almost all of it, I should say, is cryptozoological you know everything from bigfoot to sea monsters to mothman but for my particular entry or submission it was about ancient mariners and what kind of tools they used so it's it covers a, a wide range of stuff in anthology one i'm also working on a contribution for anthology two which is a ghost story haunted places theme and um and I'm working, writing it mostly from a first-person perspective and the only place I've ever been that I truly consider to be haunted. So, uh, my one and only personal ghost story. So, I'm telling the first person. <laughs> oh, and yeah, the, man. I'll go the, ahead. Other thing, the other thing I'm working on, uh, just starting, just starting an outline, so to speak, but I have a firm title and the title is Falling Up. So, and it's about Hollow Earth. That is a really good title. That's very catchy. Uh, that's why I decided on it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's a very, very catchy one. And, you know, uh, people spend... Uh, I, I've always heard that, and I've got uh, several things that I've written, but nothing uh, nothing ever came out publicly. I've, I've had all kinds of issues with... Uh, publications myself but uh, i know that with me it wasn't it wasn't true but i've always heard that most authors spend more time debating and trying to figure out the title and the the little uh, back biography about the book and about mm -hmm. themselves than what they do with the entire book <laughs> well i ran into that with the graves of the golden bear it's like okay that's fourth title by the way and uh and it's like, okay, I know I want to do one about the hollow earth, and I'm going to do that before I even start writing the book, because I'm going to let that drive the entire process. Now, the, uh, the book itself concentrates on the scientific aspect and a little bit of the uh, anthropological aspect of hollow earth, you know, all the people... Uh, belief systems, stories, lore about Hollow Earth is one part. And then the science that drives whether or not there can be a void inside the Earth or even subterranean tunnel systems that are vast, that science will be another section. And then another section I would call speculative science, which is different than science fiction. It's taking... Uh, accepted theory, but taking it a step further to apply it to different situations. So, so that's pretty much um, the basis of falling up. It'll flesh out a lot over the next few months. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, with uh, with that title, man, then you'll, you'll definitely uh, catch you know catch some eyes just by that title. That title is yeah. really really good. I actually really enjoy that. It's good. 
And what else have I got going? Uh, let's see. At the end of this month, uh, the 28th, 20, yeah, 28th, I will be in Burlington, Wisconsin, 28th, 29th, and 30th, at the Burlington Vortex Conference, uh, Mary Sutherland Sci-Fi Cafe. And uh, I'll be giving a presentation up there, and we'll, we're going out to a, a mound area with a little um, side trip group and talk about the mounds and how that, because that actually figures into my book, too. We didn't get, go there yet, but probably won't tonight. But uh, the mounds and the fortresses were integral uh, for some period of time, and then the the fortresses fell aside and the mounds kept going, including some of the mounds in Wisconsin. But uh, the Burlington thing is, I went there last year, I had a blast. Uh, Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin, Fritz Zimmerman, Frank Joseph, Bonnie Meyer, uh, Daryl Sims, um, and I don't have the entire roster before me, but um, Linda Godfrey is there on Thursday before I arrive, probably. Um, Linda Godfrey being the author of The Beast of Bray Road, Word Michigan, Word Wisconsin, and about 10 other titles. So Yeah. Yeah, I follow the werewolf stories uh, intensely. Uh, there, there's quite a lot of them. Uh, werewolf or Bigfoot-type uh, creature stories running through North America that just don't get published okay. at all. Uh, let's see. It looks like we got somebody wanting to join the conversation, if I got this right. So, Mr. Producer, please proceed. Anyway, the uh, Vortex Conference is a blast, and um, I'm also working with the Pythagoras Conference, which is currently slated for this December, and uh, that's with Sandra Sabatini at the helm. And um, working towards presentations for the Ancient Kentucky Historical Association. And in the coming year, probably next fall, I'll be uh, attending, possibly, probably presenting at the Midwest Epigraphic Society, Ancient Artifact Preservation Society, and a whole covey of other places for this book and probably some other stuff, too. So, busy year ahead. Yeah, man, it sounds like it. sounds like it. Uh, so, yeah, we do have a caller on the line. Uh, uh, caller, go ahead and uh, state your name and uh, your comment or your question. Okay. Caller, are you there? Hey, how you gentlemen doing? Can you hear me? Yes, yes sir. we do hear you. Okay. Oh, you, you, you know me. I'm the... Comp- Yes, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Did okay. You, did uh, you, have you have a? Did you have a? a quick, I'll go ahead and uh, quit talking after this, so that way you can talk to Rick Osman directly. Uh, do you, caller, do you have a question or a comment? Any day now. Go. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Stop right laughing. Start talking. <laughs> Today would be nice. 
Okay, great. All right. Well, I got a, bit, a little bit of a delay there. Sorry. Anyway, this is Oscar Benjamin, otherwise known as the Compassionate Wolf. So, I'm Hello, Oscar. Uh, okay. Not sure what's up with that connection. Yes. Hello. How you doing? <laughs> I'm well, thank you. Yeah, he's going to have to call from his phone because his connection uh, is having problems. So, continue, Okay. Guys. All righty. Uh, let's see. Where were we? Oh, yeah, talking about all the events coming up. There are, everything I mentioned so far is a pretty regular event for anyone who might be interested in this topic in general. The Midwest Epigraphic Society is centered in Columbus, Ohio. The Ancient Kentucky Historical Association is in Louisville area. Um, Ancient Artifact Preservation Society is centered around Marquette, Michigan. Uh, there are a number of other smaller groups pretty much all over the country. So if you're interested in this and you have uh, a desire to join or hook up or just learn more, uh, feel free to get a hold of me on Facebook at the Graves of the Golden Bear Facebook page, and I'll try to hook you up with someone in your area if possible. Otherwise, just whoever might, you know, fit your needs uh, and not just in the US either there are groups in Norway and Britain um, even Japan that look at out of place artifacts migrations diffusion theory uh, etc so you know and Australia in fact so you know hook up with me on the Facebook page and uh, I'll do my best to get you hooked up with people in your region geographic region okay and uh real quick um uh, rick i've got a question from facebook i i i guess they're also in the skywatchers uh, radio.com chat room i don't know why they didn't post it there but uh through facebook they sent me a question they and i'm kind of afraid to ask it because i'm afraid that it has to do with a spoiler for your book but i'm gonna go ahead and ask it and if you don't if you don't want to answer it rick that's fine uh but their question is okay. did did Rick name his book, quote, Golden Bear, end quote, uh, for having to do with the recent Eagle movie, the Golden Eagle movie with the Roman Legion disappearing? That's their, I guess that's their question. I guess they're asking if uh, that had anything to do with the Eagle movie. There is a connection, but not what they're thinking. Okay, okay. Well, and we have another caller, yeah, go ahead, caller. Say your name. Hey, we're, I was just on. The, I was actually just on the line a couple of minutes ago, and I was having that bad feedback. Um, oh, okay. My, Welcome on back, my Oscar. Headphones. Anyway, Oscar Benjamin, Compassionate Wolf. I'll be starting my show on Monday, so thought I'd call in tonight, see how you guys are doing, and doing really well. I want to tell you that for right off the bat. So you guys are well, thank you. pretty smooth on the show. You're very welcome. And actually, um, I want to. I'm actually um, also a professional photographer and a reporter, so. Um, the very topic you were discussing earlier about um, perhaps ancient astronaut visits, you know, in the Americas and what have you. I was talking to an actor um, two weeks ago. His name is Raul Julia Levy, and he's actually got a documentary coming out next year on the very subject. So it's supposedly the governments of Mexico and Guatemala have uncovered some new 
evidence and some new hard evidence of these. You know, I, I was trying to pry a lot out of him, but he didn't want to reveal too much because obviously he was pitching his documentary. So it was pretty intriguing. So I'm actually looking forward yeah, to Yeah, I, I would love to take a guess. Actually, I'd love to get him in a small room and uh, him in a rubber hose. But um, I'm guessing that they have found some skeletal evidence of people, humanoid skeletons, let's just leave it at that, who were about, oh, I don't know, eight feet, four inches tall and had seven fingers. Yeah, he did actually mention um, creatures of that of that size, but he also mentioned there's some, several codex and, you know, supposedly some kind of landing field there and a couple of other interesting topics. So it was a pretty fascinating interview. Yeah. Um, actually, I did a presentation on that very topic uh, let's see, a year ago. Ah, okay. Oh. And uh, <laughs> that description, but they in that particular case, it was the skeletons from Palenque. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it was multiple skeletons. It wasn't, you know, just, it wasn't just Lord Pakal in that tomb. Yes. There, there were several skeletons in that tomb, uh, in and near that tomb. Mm-hmm. Have but you ever okay? Have you ever actually seen any of the? Have you ever seen any of this physical evidence yourself, or not from my country? No, but no. as far as giant remains, yes, and giant tools as well. Ah, so you've actually seen them with your own eyes, then? Is that what you're stating yes. here? Uh, wow. Yeah, and and in fact there. The you know you have all these newspaper clippings from the 19th century, and a lot of the scholars will tell you, oh well, they were just you know it was just hype trying to sell newspapers. Yes. Well, that was not true in San Antonio in 1941 when they dug one up. Okay? I see. Wow. <laughs> um, and photographed it, and that photograph is in my book. Amazing. What's the title of your book again? Graves of the Golden Bear. Ancient okay. Fortresses and Monuments of the Ohio Valley. And is it, a, have you actually published it yet, or is it a, a It is available it? on Kindle, uh, on Amazon, as well as on Smashwords, mm-hmm. and probably, if not by now, then probably this time tomorrow on Barnes & Noble. I see, wow. Amazing. So what is, so as, and, as a person who's actually... So do you actually you actually subscribe to the belief then that these actual skeletal remains are actually real and are not you know not at creations of some you know huckster in the past or some you know some sideshow barker or what have you? So they're well that yeah, I think the main hoax and the one that they always trot out to say they're all hoaxes is the Cardiff Giant, which was a hoax and it was yeah, carved yeah. from gypsum. Yeah. Um, and it was uh, I want to say ten feet tall. I don't have all that in front of me, but that one was a hoax, yes. But when you go back through all of the uh, scholarly things, because not all, not all these reports were in newspapers. Some of them were in scholarly journals of the time, mm-hmm. the ninth, early, well, throughout the 19th century, up to, well, 1941. Yes. Scholars reported them as well. Uh, the Lovelock Cave Giant was was examined by scholars and reported. Mm-hmm. Uh, Caleb Atwater, who was a correspondent for the Antiquarian Society, 
in the early 1800s, 1828 to 1841, I believe. I'd have to look that one up. He reported several discoveries or uh, excavations that unearthed giant skeletons. Some of them yeah. multiple skeletons in a single mound or grave. And these were scholarly reports, not, you know, they weren't sensationalist newspaper reports. Mm-hmm. So, so where's the disparity there? Okay, you're going to say that all of them are hoaxes based on this one. And in doing so, you wipe out all the scholarly journals about giants, but you go back and you pick up, okay, they had arrowheads. Yeah, we, we agree they had arrowheads. Or they had pottery. Yeah, they had pottery. They had corded pottery, which gets into a whole other realm of who was here and when, especially in Ohio. <laughs> um, the pottery is very telling, incidentally. Yes. But the, the giants, the very large stature, people, let's put it that way, the seven-footers, the eight-footers that were found profusely in the so-called Adena Mounds, we have no idea what they call themselves, Mm -hmm. um, are almost identical in remains, shape of the skull, stature, and pottery, as well as metallurgy, as the so-called beaker culture, or bell beaker culture of Europe. British Isles in the Mediterranean, and mm-hmm. since they inhabited islands in the middle of the Mediterranean, we're pretty safe in assuming they were sailors. Okay. So, you, is it possible uh, that the Adena people and the Bell Beaker people were the same people? Well, it well you know there are conclusive there. Well, we could be absolutely conclusive if they release a little bit of DNA, but they won't do it. So what what is your actual? Do you have any kind of? Do you have any theories on who these giants may actually be? Do you think they're extraterrestrial in nature? Are they a previous race of humans that have been here before we arrived, or before we evolved? I should say probably. No, I think we co-evolved with them. Okay. Um, and at some point, there was some intermixing, as well. Ah, but, in fact, there's several passages in the Bible that mentioned. Uh, so-called, is it Seraphim or Nephilim? Or I don't know. What, I always Nephilim? Yeah. Nephilim, the, the Nephilim. giants that, yeah. the angels, that the result of the interbreeding between angels and humans. Right. But even long after that, in David's time, there were still giants, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, hence, you know, Goliath. Yeah. But and, also- uh, just... Just to interject real quick, uh, there there's a lot of uh, literature that talks about how Goliath had seven fingers, seven yeah, toes, and Goliath had two brothers that were giants that also had seven fingers and toes. In fact, when uh, David got the stone to take out Goliath, he gets three, and the other two are for his brothers. Mm. Yeah, exactly. But the brothers weren't all that stupid after they saw what happened to Goliath. <laughs> well, you know, it's that old saying, you, you mess with one of the family, you got to mess with all of them. And, yeah. uh, you know, so, but yeah, there's a lot of uh, statues and historical evidence that points that there were small, tiny people and very large people with six toes, six fingers, mm-hmm. or seven fingers, seven toes. Yes. Yep. Uh, and so, this, who, and the, do, you, do you guys, do you, who currently has control of these bones? Who exactly has these bones? Which is it a government entity? Well, private industry or 
or do you know? The the only there are only well, okay. There is a femur that's actually held in a private collection. Mm-hmm. There is a skull that is in a museum in Massachusetts. A and the status of that museum, I'm a little unclear whether it's a publicly held museum or a privately held museum. But most of them were shipped to the Smithsonian, and and there are they cannot be found, they cannot be examined, they cannot be tested. Mm-hmm. So, pff, won't get any DNA out of them. The femur and the skull, particularly if it has any teeth left in it, are pretty good sources of DNA. Mm-hmm. If it's intact enough that you can recognize it, you know, it's probably got viable DNA for testing. If you can match the genome to, say, the Bell Beaker people, then you have pretty clear evidence that the Bell Beaker people, Adina, were the same people and that they could cross an ocean pretty much at will. Which is the real deal. It's like, if they could, if they could do it 4,000 years ago, say, what's to keep later people from doing it? What, they were smaller and couldn't row as well? Exactly. <laughs> <I knew Craig. laughs> what, would, what do you think is your, um, do you have any particular theories on why these particular people don't exist or are, have, have apparently become extinct, uh, or extinct, I should say, are they, are they actually still around, do you think? Uh, I think that a lot of their genome is still around. And it is expressed, um, well, it's expressed a lot in the NBA, but it's expressed <laughs> a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're just, they're a lot taller people. Now, the both the Adena and the Bell Beaker people had a different shape of skull. They had a low forehead, but it was long in the back. And the... Of course, we don't have enough skulls to do any measurements today because they're all hidden or destroyed. Uh, But in the late 19th century, these scientists were seeing what the brain capacity was inside these skulls. How big were their brains? And that was supposed to be some measure of how smart they were. Uh And it turns out that they had a larger brain-to-body mass ratio than we do. So they were either smarter than we are, or they just needed a lot more brain to run that body. Hmm. Now, why they're not why they're not extinct, okay? Not really. Just like mm-hmm. Neanderthal is not extinct. Not really, because we still carry their genome. Or yeah. parts of it at least. So they they didn't disappear from the earth. They were absorbed into the other population. There's actually a fascinating theory going around. I don't know if you heard this, that Neanderthal is actually uh, Bigfoot and uh, the Yeti, that they're actually a form of Neanderthal, actually. I don't know if you heard eh, that. Yeah, I've that. heard that. I don't buy it, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think that these cryptid hominids are an entirely different race of... Um, primate and i'll just leave it at that because okay. we're primates too but yes of course <laughs> I, th- I think they are are a disease they are not the great apes but they're obviously not entirely human either are they a missing link i don't i'm not going there 
Yes, it could be. A, it could be. A, there's also the theories, of course, that there is some form of ambassadors coming through that that um, speculated Stargate that's in it was in New Mexico, is it? Or have I got the right date uh, there? Uh, you lost me on that one. I'm not not privy okay. to that. Okay. Guys, guys, I hate to interject, but uh, I'm going to have to take a break. Yep, uh, Everyone, you're listening to Skywatchers Radio, and we have Rick Osman, who is the author of Graves, Graves of the Golden Bear. And we'll be right back here in a few minutes, and uh, uh, thank you very much for the call, caller. All right, thanks. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, are we alone? Alien Information regarding alone? this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com. The largest selection of UFO products on the internet. Looking for a used car? Well, look no further. Florida Fine Cars has the car just for you. Here at Florida Fine Cars, we pride ourselves in customer service and quality of cars. Looking for a high-end car? We got them. Looking for an older car for a small cash deal? We got them. Due to having over 400 cars in our inventory, no matter what your situation, we can help. For more information, please go to www.floridafinecars.com today. There's a war going on in the streets. It's the War on Thirst. Spunk is winning the War on Thirst with the new grenade-shaped can. Hey, yo, pull the pin and blow your thirst right off in that brand new taste explosion. Boom! That's the sound of refreshment. Sprunk. Go AWOL from the Cola Wars with an energizing mix of lemon, lime, ten times of caffeine and sugar. Plus, mercury and benzene for the extra pop. Yo, it'll bring the temperature right up and the bubbles. Other beverages use carbon dioxide. But use ether to kick up that fizz. Thanks to all that mercury, you won't remember anything that tasted so good. Now pick up a Sprunk Thermal Nuclear six-pack. Kill thirst and liven up the party. Toss your friends a Sprunk in the grenade-shaped can and enter the Sprunk sweepstakes where you can win a real case of grenades. Sprunk, blow your thirst right off in that brand new taste explosion. Drugs taller. If you got the money, she'll spread those legs with a cigarette and a shark name and 
systems are functional. This is nuclear physicist and treatment and now I'm a voice in the jackal's head. It's the government keeping secrets from us. This is Stephen Bassett and uh, I am now a voice inside the jackal's head. Want to find out more? Listen to the jackal's head on the Super Media Network. The biggest trick the jackal ever pulled was to miss the world <laughs> that he doesn't exist. By the Glass. By the Glass is a show about beverage culture. Brad Hubbard. What I'm going to do is I'm going to connect the dots on how everything works together. It's really all about how we enjoy things, how we enjoy life, and how beverages play a big part in that. I'm going to bring in people that are going to display their aspect of the culture. I'm going to bring in people that are going to show you different products. We're going to look at places where people go to consume these beverages and how they all interact. Things are built around the actual beverage itself. By the Glass. Thursdays from 6 to 7. Only on SoFlo Radio. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Hello, everyone, and you're listening to Skywatchers Radio at www.skywatchersradio.com. Please join us over there. Uh, it is October the 13th, 2011. We're here. It's 12.45 a.m. on the east side, and we're here with my co-host and special guest for tonight, Rick Osman. Been discussing all about his new book, Graves of the Golden Bear. Yeah. Rick? <laughs> so yeah, how, where do we go from here? Um, well, I was going. I was just going to ask you a quick question. Uh, I, I write myself, and I just was wondering how long did it take you to uh, uh, to I guess create the book to the point to where you are like, okay, this is a finished project. And uh, because uh, I, I was just interested, in it. I know that you've dealt with so many uh, so so many things involving uh, past history, and I was just wondering how long did it take you to do this. Okay, well, first of all, it'll never be done. Um, and here's where I go back to a, the best quote I ever heard about creating something. came from a guy by the name of uh, Ben Burt, I think is his name. He's the sound designer for all the Star Wars movies. And he said, great motion picture soundtracks are never released. They escape. And I know exactly what he means, because... It comes to the point of, yeah, I could keep tweaking on this till I die, but let's get it out there. So that's what happened, and I started actually writing it last March and finished or let it get away or however, opened the cage, um, like got it to the publisher. And then, then we made just a, a few tiny tweaks over the weekend and got it uploaded to Kindle Monday in time for Columbus Day, which was the plan to begin with. So uh, about seven months, I guess, altogether. Yeah, now I, I see, uh, I'm looking at, 
it looks, it's, well, I don't want to say it's a poster, but it's a, uh, I guess a preview of what your your book is about, and it's, uh, it looks like it's on golden parchment paper, and uh, I was just going to ask you, is, uh, is, your, is the publishing company that you're dealing with, Grave Distractions Publications? Correct. Exactly. Okay, all right, yeah, I've I seen that there. Um, and that's like, actually, like, that's actually the Delisle map, the one that, uh, that has the code stuff in it. So, mm. so the the purpose of putting that up there is where I saw it, you know. And for all the readers or just interested parties, there may be something in there that I've missed, although I have been over it pretty thoroughly. Uh, so if you find something, feed it back to me or write your own book. You know, there's there's a, there's enough room for everybody in this one. There's enough <laughs> deception that's gone on for three hundred. 2,000, 5,000 years that there's more to uncover. Yeah, and go ahead, if, if you don't mind, tell the uh, audience listeners uh, where where you are going to be at uh, here soon, and uh, I believe you said you're guest speaking? Yes. Um, I am one of several speakers at the Burlington Vortex Conference Halloween weekend, so that would be the 28th, 29th, and 30th. They actually have something going on from the 24th through the 30th. And Burlington, which is about an hour north of Chicago. And um, nice little town. I mean, if you're old enough to remember the show Erie, Indiana, it could have been Burlington, Wisconsin. Because there's a lot of weird stuff goes on there. And the town itself is incredibly interesting, both its history and its prehistory. There are a couple of really interesting mounds up there. And there are tunnels all underneath the town that go off in strange directions. Nobody need, seems to know why or when. And um, some of the uh, more celebrated Mormon relics were found nearby the Voorhees Plates. Um it's not Joseph Smith's plates. It's a different set of plates. Um, so, yeah, I'm going up to Burlington at the end of the month. Yeah, and, and you just brought, you brought the Mormons, and I didn't, I didn't notice that. Um, uh, you know, the, the whole plate thing, that, that brings a little bit more, uh, I guess, intrigue to the whole Joseph Smith story. Uh, yeah. Well... <laughs> I have a chapter in it. Uh, I don't deal directly with Joseph Smith's plates because there's just, first of all, there are no plates to examine. And secondly, um, I don't know enough to verify or denigrate the whole Mormon thing. What I can say for sure is that a lot of other people have done both or done one or the other to be more accurate. And in a lot of cases, the, those who denigrated the Mormons did so on the basis of dogma rather than evidence. And any evidence supported the Mormon stuff disappeared, including almost all the plates, which I find interesting. But there are other tablets, other engraved objects with various scripts and odd pictures on them called the Burroughs Cave Artifacts. 
as well as the Michigan tablets or the Soper Savage tablets or the Decalogue Stone or the Grave Creek tablet or there are literally thousands of engraved tablets from North America in scripts that the academics don't recognize or acknowledge as being real. Yet there's one of the well, there's actually more than one, but there's a picture of one in my book of the Burroughs Cave relics that has three different scripts, apparently with the same, much like the Rosetta Stone in Egypt. Nobody questioned the Rosetta Stone's reality, but all the academics questioned Burroughs Cave relics, period. It's all a hoax, all 7,000 of them. A guy made in his garage. Yeah, right. Sorry. I ain't buying that. <laughs> well, you know, usually when you got the um, the academic and the scientific community trying to say that something's faked or, you know, or hoax or didn't happen, that's usually when my ears perk up and I, I, I tend to listen a little bit more closely to that uh, subject. Uh, you know, that, that's just me, though. <laughs> yeah. And interestingly enough, this particular cave is in an area of Illinois called Little Egypt. And nobody has ever come up with a good reason to call it Little Egypt. Oh, wow. Other than there's a lot of Egyptian place names and uh, artifacts that might be Egyptian, might not. But uh, certainly, certainly an oddity. And, of course, there's a lot of history, you know, current era colonization U.S. history in that area as well. So there's a lot of concentration of the book along the Ohio Valley. Of course, that's the bottom end of Illinois. And it took a lot about Cahokia as well because mm-hmm. it was it's the largest earthen mound on the continent, largest, largest prehistoric earthwork of any kind on the continent. And um, and it just, it's kind of strange that, you know, at first, when I say at first, if you go back 30 years, the anthropologists and archaeologists and historians were saying, well, we think there might have been as many as 5,000 people. And then 10 years ago, they said, wow, we think there might have been as many as 30,000 people lived there. And then this year, they came out and they said, there might have been 50,000 people lived there. Well, a guy by the name of Vince Barrows, a, who's actually an engineer, but who was part of the advisory board for quite some time at Cahokia. Uh, he ran some numbers. You know, engineers tend to do that. He ran the numbers of how many people it would take to move that many basket loads of dirt. And uh, he came up with a lot more than 50,000. Add a couple zeros. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've uh, heard theories that the the Egyptian uh, Royal Library of Alexandria was never fully destroyed and that the Romans had taken some of that information and hidden it. And of course we have, uh, I know that in a National Treasure of the movie they played around with the idea that the Knights Templar had a, a large majority of it and things like that. But um, the more that I learn about Alexander the Great, uh, the more I seriously start to question 
if that library really did burn. Because, I mean, it was, you know, in some stories they say it was an accident uh, by Julius Caesar. And then in other stories it was purposely set on fire. And, uh, you know, that, that could, uh, you know, you could play around with that theory that if the Romans had that information, they could have went to uh, the Americans. They could have brought some of that with them. Joseph mm-hmm. Smith could have happened to find that. Because I know that the tablets that he described, uh, he said that they look like Egyptian hieroglyphics. So, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. go from there. <laughs> well, all but the thing about it is, most of the texts in Alexandria were not in hieroglyphics. Most of them were in ancient. Yeah, it'd be Greek and yeah. Latin, the majority. <laughs> well, most of them were Greek because it was Ptolemaic Greek colony long mm-hmm. before the Romans ever got there. Okay, yeah, for, yeah. For 300 years before the Romans got there. And, uh, uh, yeah, about 300. And so most of the records there were either original Greek or they were translated into Greek from the original papyrus, very little of which actually survived. But uh, there probably was also some Sumerian stuff there. And when you get into cuneiform, an entirely different script, and it's also a script that's found in North America in a few places, incidentally. And since we're down to just a couple minutes, I'll tell this tale and then we're probably done. Chief Joseph of the Nez Pierce tribe, when he was captured by U.S. cavalry, had in his medicine bag a one-inch square plate with cuneiform writing on it, a clay tablet with cuneiform writing on it. How did a Native American end up with cuneiform? We still don't know the answer. But we do know that Chief Joseph graduated from West Point. So, whatever you think that's worth. Now, when you say cuneiform, are you talking about, I've always pronounced it as cuneiform, the Sumerian cuneiform? Yeah, yeah, well, okay, same thing, different Yeah, yeah, well, no, it, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> mm. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, the cuneiform is very interesting. In fact, um, uh, most people don't know that it's never been fully tra- translated and that there's 600 characters to that language. And uh, that is insane because... Uh, right. Most languages that we have today are in around 25, uh, 26 letters uh, in their entire yeah. alphabet. And this one had right. 600. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there are, there are 3,800. If you take in all the Chinese dialects, there are 3,800 characters in Chinese writing. Oh, I did not know that. 3,800? Wow. Most of them are unused today. So it's mm-hmm. a lot of dead scripts, but they still exist historically. So, Okay, see, I, I didn't know that. I've never studied the uh, Mandarin or the Chinese. I know a lot of people say Mandarin, but from what I understand, the Mandarin is just a slang. Uh, it's but, one of many languages in China. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was always told that English is uh, the second hardest language in the world, and Chinese was the first. Well, I've never learned Chinese, so I couldn't try. Couldn't answer yeah. that. Couldn't even address it or guess. But um, anyway, I think aren't we getting real close to being do- yeah, well, done yeah, for tonight? We'll go ahead and yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, you're listening to Skywatchers Radio, and uh, we're part of the PSN dot. It's dash. PSN dash. Oh, my bad. 
psn-radio.com and uh, you're listening in and guys if you can uh, we'd, we'd like to funnel you into the chat room for next time we're here every Wednesday at 11 p.m. Eastern but if you're on if you're around California guys it's I believe it's 9 p.m. Uh, so you're listening again to Skywalkers Radio I am Brian McComas and I had my co-host and guest here Rick Osmond discussing his book Graves of the Golden Bear check that book out electronically and uh, we'll see you next time, fellow Skywatchers. Bet you.